For at least 700 years, presumed criminals were publicly executed in London. These executions were gruesome, gory and very popular. A new exhibition at the Museum of London in Docklands is exploring this grisly history. They've identified, as far as possible, those who died. They've identified the many places used as execution sites, far more than we previously thought, across London. They've looked at the crimes punishable by the death penalty and the different methods used to dispatch people. On top of that, they explore the emotions around death, the experience of prisoners approaching death, and the culture and economy that grew up around the death penalty. I went to see it and met up with curator Tom Ardeal for a private tour of this marvellously macabre exhibition. I just ought to say that this episode contains some graphic descriptions of execution. So if you're having a bite to eat or are feeling a bit squeamish, you may want to fast forward through some of those bits. Tom, thank you so much for agreeing to show me around this exhibition. So this is an exhibition focusing on public executions in London. I'm aware that we're at the Museum of London Docklands and there is another site for the Museum of London, which is indeed about to move to Smithfield, the site of execution. What was the rationale for this exhibition? Why did you want to put it on and why did you choose the parameters that you did? Crime and punishment seems to be a big theme for the Museum of London. It's something we've returned to over the years. We had an exhibition a few years ago called the Crime Museum, which was about the police collection. I came to that one. Great, yeah. (laughs) So that was looking at the later period and we thought, let's go back in time and look at the earlier period. And the more we looked into executions, we're just surprised. It's a subject that everyone thinks they know, and they think of the really famous people who are executed, like Anne Boleyn. What you might not realise is just how many ordinary Londoners who might have stolen a little bit of cloth or something like that, or some bread, were executed in London eight times a year at Tyburn, throughout the city at various points in history. And really, just what would it be like to live under that threat? the whole time, knowing that if you missed a crime, you'd probably get away with it. But if you didn't, it would be a capital punishment for really some quite minor crimes. So it's really trying to get to grips of what would it feel like to live in London in that period. What would it feel like? And I suppose you've also done this work of mapping where executions took place in London, where we can find the gibbets and the gallows and the stocks and the scaffolds. We obviously wanted to cover the famous sites. We've got Tyburn, Smithfield, where lots of martyrs and heretics were burnt, Tower Hill. But the more we looked into it, the more we realised actually people are executed pretty much everywhere in London. In central London, in the city of London, you're never more than 500 metres from somewhere where someone was executed. In the greater London, you're always within about five miles. We found over 100 sites of execution because actually the place where you were executed was very symbolic. And that's why Smithfield becomes associated with heretics. Tower Hill becomes associated with traitors. And particularly heinous crimes like murders or terrible thefts and rioting as well would often take place at the point of the crime. And it was a way of showing the local people that justice had been done. But also the associates of the person being executed, their friends, people who might share their feelings, who might be a bit of a rebel as well, who might be part of their gang that this is what could happen to them if they're followed in their footsteps. So there's this incredibly visceral kind of local element as well. So we're looking at kind of London-wide, but also that really local area. That's quite startling that there are so many sites, that you are so close to them wherever you are in London. 
And I'd always thought that places of execution, they were on the outside of the city, Tyburn, outside the city parameters, even Smithfield outside. Does your work on this, mapping these execution sites, suggest actually that it happened within the city confines as well? Yeah, it's interesting that point about the executions happening on the edge of the city. And that's always been the explanation for Tyburn. It's right there at the edge of Westminster. It's just where you get to nice green land. It's on the road into London, Edgware Road. So if you came into London from the north, you'd definitely pass. I think there's a practical element to that as well. If you were going to bring 20,000, 30,000 people, which you often had at these executions, to a site, you couldn't do it in central London. So there's a reason to go slightly outside of London for that, a practical reason. So I think actually it was a real central London phenomenon as well. That's interesting about the numbers. Do we know when the crowds got that big? And how do we know that? I think these numbers are always a little bit to be taken with a pinch of salt. These are very much from accounts, either from broadsides, from newspapers, from diarists, things like that. So I think when you're estimating crowds, it can be really hard to know. So 20,000 comes up a lot, 30,000, 40,000. I've heard 50,000. Some of those are definitely exaggerations because you just wouldn't get that number of people in. But when you consider that London had a much smaller population, in the Tudor period we're talking what? 200,000 and you could have a good 10, 15, 20% turnout to an execution. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that there's very much a sense that if you are entering London from somewhere else, if you're coming from the west, Bristol say, or coming up from the south and then you'd go across London Bridge and you'd see those heads on spikes, you're given a warning very quickly on arrival in London that behave or this is what happens to you. It's every place. It's Temple Bar as well. So as you enter the City of London from Westminster, you're passing under the heads of traitors. If you're coming by the river, there are gibbets all along the Thames. They're placed on the corners, on the bends of the river, so you can see them as soon as you enter London and then go past Wapping, where the pirates were executed. You can't come into the city and not see that kind of architecture as punishment. That's fascinating, because it suggests that execution and the sense of violent death is very much more integrated into society than I've ever really thought. And it also suggests an interesting mixture of kind of emotions around death because there's a kind of sense of being inured to it, perhaps, the gleefulness of going to an execution. And then, of course, everyone involved is loss and sorrow and terror and all of those. It's a much more interesting mix than I had previously thought. Yeah, and I think it's really nuanced. I think what we've found in this subject is that it really encompasses every element of London life. So there's a bit of entertainment, there's news, there's politics, there's the economy. People were buying broadsides and books and an execution day was an opportunity to sell gingerbread and pies and, and drink and gin and that kind of thing. We found out from reading about different executions that the mood could be totally different one day to the next. And it depends who the person is and how people felt about them. So there were occasions where actually there was sort of a real tension and which way were the crowd going to go? Was this someone who actually they had a great sympathy for, a criminal or a heretic, someone who actually they might admire? Or was this someone who was really reviled and hated? And I think especially at Smithfield, you've got to think, OK, a lot of the crowd might be good Catholics or good Protestants, <laughs> whichever period we're in, but their supporters would be there watching as well. The execution is actually always a dangerous time because you're always given a chance to speak. What the authorities want you to say is they want you to say your prayers, they want you to tell everyone watching, don't do what I do, don't sin, work hard, (laughs) don't fall into bad ways. 
but they didn't have to. And if you wanted to go to your death saying, no, my belief is right, I did the right thing, I'm not a traitor, or I should have deposed this person, or this is what I've read in the Bible and this is what I believe, then that was your opportunity. And if the authorities got it wrong and the crowd had a great deal of sympathy, that could backfire, I think, politically. So interesting. I've read so many scaffold speeches from the period, and quite often people very much keep to the authorities' line. They don't challenge the accusations against them quite as directly as one would have thought if they were innocent. And I think many of these people are innocent. So it's interesting that you're presenting it as an opportunity for them to state their own truth. And yet still, I guess, the terror of that situation and the sense that they're going to meet their maker and just the sort of great weight of authority means that people don't always take that opportunity. I think so. I think one thing to say is sometimes those scaffold speeches are sometimes even written before it happens by someone else, so they're not always trustworthy. But I think the experience of a lot of people waiting for execution, often in Newgate in London, which was built in the 12th century and used as a holding prison, was that you were being berated every day by the ordinary of Newgate, who was the chaplain of Newgate, by the prison authorities to confess, to pray. There was this sort of last sermon that was held where you'd actually sit around a coffin the executed people would be there in the pews looking at the coffin they were going to be buried in and given a last chance to receive communion if they'd said sorry. And people were terrified, of course they were. And it was an easier death, I think, if you could reconcile yourself to it. You could feel that you'd been forgiven. And of course, most of London at this point are quite religious. And I think it's a much easier way to go. So I think people did quite often say what they were expected to say. So, Tom, let's go into the exhibition. I'm aware, having had a quick look around already, that there's so much to see. We're just going to pick out some highlights, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. And we cover nearly 700 years. We decided to start with William Fitzosbert, who is the first named person we know at Tyburn who was executed. And then we decided to end in 1868, when the last person to be publicly executed. So, 700 years of material, but yeah, let's go and see some highlights. First of all, we're looking at the different ways that you could die. <laughs> so we're going to start with gory grizzle or grizzly gore. Talk me through these different ways that people were executed in London and what they meant. Yes, throughout London's history, the vast majority of people who suffered an execution were hanged. It was the punishment for a common criminal. But there were other forms of punishment that had a kind of symbolic meaning. For example, if you were a heretic, you could be burnt alive. And I think that's done partly to get rid of the body completely, so there could be no relics from the person, so their supporters couldn't keep those. Women were burnt instead of hanged. For petty treason, for example, which could be killing your husband or killing your master, they were hanged first, actually, and then burnt afterwards. And no one really knows why an 18th century commentator thinks it's because it would be undignified to see a woman cut up um, and somehow it's better to see them burned, which is a terrible idea. We also have, obviously, hanging, drawing and quartering. In the exhibition, we'd flip that around and talk about drawing, hanging and quartering so that it explains the process a little bit better. Originally, you'd be dragged behind a horse on a rope. That actually doesn't happen for that long because some people died on the way to be hung. It's such a traumatic experience to go through that in later periods, people were attached to a hurdle or a sleigh or something like that and dragged through the street, and it became more of a sort of symbolic degrading act. Then they were hanged, but not until they were dead. Cut down, cut open, having their insides shown to them in front of their eyes as they finally died, 
and then beheaded, and then their limbs cut off. And sometimes those were even sent around the kingdom. So in the case of a very famous traitor, you might have a limb sent to York or to Lincoln or to somewhere where you're associated. And during that process, which was often known as a traitor's death, men would be emasculated. And the other thing in 1535, John Horton, one of his limbs was put up outside the Charter House. He was one of the Charter House abbots who refused to go quietly. And we go a bit further down. We've got some wonderful engravings illustrating each of these deaths as well as we go past. Can you tell me about this one next to hanging? Yes, yeah, so it's a very small engraving, and you can actually see it's got a three and a spade at the top. So it's a playing card with the execution of the murderers of Mr. Godfrey. They're being hung in their traditional way, which is to stand on a cart under the gallows, and then the cart is drawn away and they're left hanging. And the reason it's reproduced on a playing card is it's propaganda, really. So they're involved in a plot to raise anti-Catholic feeling in 1679. Protestant state distributing this image in this kind of cheap playing card would be a way to get that propaganda out. I'm amazed that you can get a set of playing cards that are almost like top trumps and you've got all the various ways in which people have died before you. It's an extraordinary thing to want to own. And hanging, drawing and quartering, a very famous print here. Yes, this is the Gunpowder Plotters in 1606. It's actually quite a useful image for understanding the process because it brings all the elements together at once. It's lots of time periods are being covered. And you can see two of the conspirators being drawn behind horses on these kind of mats or sleds. There's a gallows with someone being hanged and there's also a bonfire so you could burn the heart and burn the entrails. Beheading is a type of death that we associate quite a lot with the Tudor period, but only people of a certain status would get that kind of death, wouldn't they? It's the friendly version. <laughs> so if you're of a high status, you'd be spared the indignity of hanging, drawing, quartering, and just get your head chopped off. If it was expertly done, it could be a very quick and still degrading death, but actually this is the least painful death I think there was. Unfortunately, the image we've got, we're showing here, which is the beheading of the Duke of Monmouth, that was an example where it didn't go very well, and the executioner, having tried to chop off the head with an axe, has resorted to using a knife, because it was actually quite a difficult thing to do. So this is the infamous Jack Ketch, who was terrible at it. But I suppose the problem is that hangmen are used to hanging people. They're not butchers. They don't know how to cut off someone's head, so they're likely to be bad at it. So this thing that's supposed to be a mercy could actually be pretty awful. Yeah, and of course it didn't look very good for the authorities when they're botching executions. Margaret Pole, I think, had a terrible experience and she actually stood up after the axeman had taken several shots at her. And of course the crowd would be outraged by this. I think that's the sort of fascinating thing about the history of execution is it's a lot messier and more chaotic than it should be. Yes, people don't need to die quietly. No. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts 
to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Amongst the pictures, of course, we've got something from Fox's Book of Martyrs or his Acts and Monuments here showing seven martyrs together. And of course, this is burning. Talk to me about this image. I don't think it gets close to the horror of being burnt alive at the stake. If you were lucky, you might die of shock, but there were cases where if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, if the fire hadn't taken hold quick enough, it could take a long time to die. And you'd start with your feet burning and still be alive as the fire reached up. So it's really a kind of horrific way of dying and a horrific spectacle to witness as well. I hope no one's having their tea whilst they're listening to this one. <laughs> because we've got a particularly awful one now, boiling. It was very rare. We only know of two cases where someone was boiled alive because it seems that the punishment was actually invented by Henry VIII for one particular man. Richard Roos was a chef or he was working in the kitchen of Archbishop John Fisher and some of the members of the household were poisoned after eating a porridge that he had prepared. He claimed that he wasn't trying to murder them. He had been told to put a powder into the porridge as a joke. I think he thought it was a laxative and it would be a good laugh. So maybe someone put him up to it. But Henry VIII was terrified of poisoning. So I think he wanted to show that this was really the most terrible, cowardly type of crime. The people who died were not the intended victims. Two of them were beggars. They had been given the porridge out of kindness from the family. And poor Richard Ruth being lowered into the pot multiple times. Apparently the process took two hours. Today. And it was used just one more time for Margaret Davis, who was a servant, who was accused of poisoning her mistress ten years later. And Edward VI abolished it. I think it was pretty horrified. Now, we were just talking about the various sites of execution, and you've got some wonderful pictures here that tell us about those sites. What are the ones that we particularly need to know about for the 16th and 17th centuries? I think it's worth starting with Tyburn because it's a consistent. And this is the period where the Tyburn Triple Tree comes into effect. So we know executions took place at Tyburn from the 12th century, if not before. But in 1571, the new innovation is brought in, which is this permanent three-legged gallows, the triangular shape at the top, capable of hanging 24 people at once. It is a permanent site in London. It's even on maps. So we've got a map here from 1607, one of the earliest known depictions. This is Middlesex, and here we are, St Giles, Tottenham Court, Marylebone, Tyburn, and they've actually drawn the triple tree on the map just outside London. So it was a landmark. You were just a mile away from London when you passed the Triple Tree. So that's a constant site throughout the period and traitors are executed there, heretics as well. So it's the most common site. But I think Smithfield is probably also the famous one for the Tudor period because this is the place where the heretics were executed. 
Here we've got a picture of Anne Askew. Again, this is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. An unusual one at the time because it's a woman being mm. executed for heresy. And it shows quite a big crowd, doesn't it? Smithfield is a convenient place to some extent, just outside the city walls. It's the place where the meat market happens, where jousting events had happened, Bartholomew's Fair. So it's a large public open space, and it worked for the theatre of execution. You can see the city authorities, the bishop, the Lord Mayor of London, are on a sort of stage, on a platform. That was their opportunity to explain to the people what was happening. There's a pulpit that's been erected just next to the stakes, where a sermon could be read to the people. So there's a real kind of theatre about Smithfield and the way it's used to punish these heretics in this period. It's so interesting because, of course, this is a picture that was created in order to make a point, to suggest that people are sympathetic. But at the same time, Fox is a pretty good historian. He would have known roughly if the crowd was tiny or if it was huge. So perhaps we shouldn't immediately dismiss it. <laughs> a place probably a lot of people won't have heard of is a place called Thomas a Watering, which is in Southwark. And actually that was a place where a lot of Catholics were executed. And they mainly received a traitor's death. So if you were a Catholic priest in Queen Elizabeth's time, if you'd gone over to the continent to train to be a priest and come back to London, that was made into a treasonous event. So those people were not drawn, but they were hanged and quartered. If you hit a Catholic priest, that was a felony, so you could also be executed. The list of crimes for which one could be executed was quite long, wasn't it? Yes. I think in the earlier period, we're seeing heresy, treason, murder, piracy, coinings. Any sort of offence involving money was taken very seriously. But actually, in the 17th and 18th century, the list of crimes grows to over 200. And this is where people really become concerned with property. It's the capitalist period, the growth of capitalism, and suddenly all sorts of crimes to do with damaging property, stealing, being a member of a gang, just going out with a blackened face, being in the company of Egyptians, they call them so, gypsies. All of these things could be treasonable offences. This knows the bloody code. And it's a very crazy period, really, where you could be executed for almost anything, really. Now, we come to one very famous execution here, which, of course, is that of Charles I in 1649 and you've got some amazing items here yeah it's probably one of the museum's most famous items this knitted silk undergarment a vest or a waistcoat I think it would have been called at the time a very beautiful item very high status and it's said to have been the vest that Charles I wore at his execution he is known to have worn two vests that day it was January very cold and he didn't want to be seen to be shivering on the scaffold because He didn't want people to think he was fearing death. It's said to have been given to his physician, and we know it actually remained in that family right down to the 19th century. So that provenance is quite good. We can't absolutely link it to Charles I. No, it came from the scaffold. But it's certainly an intriguing story. It's the right period, and there's good provenance for it. But he gave out lots of souvenirs. He gave out gloves. He gave out bits of his cloak and things like that as well. He knew that he'd have supporters for a long time to come. So people were really keen to collect these relics. And if you couldn't get something from the scaffold, you might get a little miniature portrait to wear as a ring or a locket. And we even have this oil painting of Charles having been beheaded and his head sewn back on, being mourned by three women who are personifications of the Kingdom of England, Scotland and Ireland, and they're wearing crowns that have fallen off and they're looking very distressed, wailing at the death of a monarch, the first and only time that a reigning British monarch was executed in public. 
This is a fascinating picture. You say in the caption that it's circa 1660, which of course makes sense, <laughs> that <laughs> only at the time of the Restoration. Perhaps would you have an image showing this quite so readily? But it really captures that sense of how distraught certainly some people were about this death and tries to suggest that that's nationwide. I'm not sure it was, but we've got that picture here. There's a lot of propaganda on the return of the monarchy in 1660. Charles II is very keen to complete change the narrative around Charles I, and one of the first things he does is he exhumed Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, and some of the other regicides who died of natural causes, were buried in Westminster Abbey with lots of pomp, and he had them dug up and executed again, hanged and beheaded and their heads on spikes. So I think he's really trying to change the narrative. And Pepys actually was slightly proud of himself for having seen the execution of Charles I and then the first executions of the regicides just a few years later. I think he saw this sort of justice or things coming full circle in this kind of crazy, topsy-turvy period of London history. We've come across a little and fascinating engraving here. You think it's from the 18th century, but it's showing something that happened in the 16th century. What is this? Yeah, this is really weird. We found this looking through our collection, trying to find images for this exhibition. And because it's showing an execution, but it's not of a person, it's not actually an execution. It's a piece of Protestant propaganda. So... In 1554, there had been an uprising against Mary I. The Protestants didn't want her to marry Philip of Spain. They were worried about a Catholic influence, and there was an uprising, and executions of those rebels were held throughout London, including in Cheapside. And the gallows were actually left in Cheapside for 100 days as a kind of reminder. But it was possible to invert this symbolism. What somebody did was took a dead cat, dressed them up as a priest or shaved the head, put the paws above its head, holding something that I think is supposed to represent a communion wafer, and strung it up on the gallows. This is a dead cat? This is a dead cat, yes. And the symbolism of this was what exactly? I think it's inverting that execution of Protestants. People had been seen as defending the nation, defending the faith. It's yeah, an attempt to show that the same thing could be done to Catholics, perhaps. We've got an image here of it's an execution for heresy, but it's also a scene of crime execution. So this is something that we realise happens throughout London's history, is that if a crime at a particular place, then sometimes the execution would be done there as well to show the outrage of the crime and to show that justice has been done. And this is the burning of William Flower in 1555. He was a Protestant and he had got it into his head. He was so disgusted by Catholic practice that he'd gone into St Margaret's Church and attacked the priest at Easter when he was saying the Mass and hurt him quite badly, not killed him. And so his punishment was to have his hand chopped off because he'd hurt the hand of the priest before being burnt in St Margaret's churchyard. And you've got this very powerful evocation of what happened whilst people were awaiting their death. Tell me about this. Yeah, this for me is a really moving object because it brings in another sense, that of sound. So this is a bell that was bought by a parishioner of Holy Sepulchre Church, which was the church closest to Newgate Prison, in 1605. And in his will, he left this bell to the church and asked that a particular verse should be read out at midnight on the night before the day of execution to remind those condemned prisoners that the hour is drawing near, that you before almighty God will appear. Examine well yourself, in time repent, that you not to eternal flames be sent. And when St Sepulchre's bell tomorrow tolls, the Lord above have mercy on your souls. And that bell will be rung again in the morning as they pass the church on their procession from Newgate to Tyburn. 
So I think bringing in that sense of you knew that bell was going to ring at midnight and when that happened, you knew it was just a few hours until you'd be walking out for your final day. And you would have heard that before. You would have heard other people condemned. And so the mounting horror each time that bell rung, that you yourself were getting nearer to the end until it finally is your bell, the bell that tolls for thee. For thee, yeah. It's still part of this ritual that grows up over the centuries about executions that make it a very sort of theatrical experience in some ways. And we're going now into an experience of that execution at Tyburn. And what's really interesting here is how you've recreated an execution ballad and you've also got these voices that sound rather unusual. <laughs> Talk me through this particular installation and what you're trying to convey. We wanted to give people a sense of some of the kind of rituals that happened at Tyburn on the execution day. And we've got accounts of what people actually said with their last dying speeches. So we used three of those as a basis for this kind of storytelling approach. So one of them we've got is Elizabeth Sawyer, who's executed for witchcraft in 1621. So we've got her words... We've got another couple. A couple who worked together, Thomas Sheward, was executed and then did so. His dead body was hung up in chains in three different locations. It was moved about London to show the three places where he'd committed murders. So Elizabeth Sawyer, we just mentioned, in whose speech we hear in the recreation. She was executed as a witch. It was claimed that she'd killed her neighbour through witchcraft. She denied the murder, but she did admit that she had blasphemed and cursed and the devil had come in upon her in the form of a dog. And so this was a great story, and Londoners couldn't resist trying to find out more about this story. And it was made into a play by William Rowley and Thomas Decker and John Ford and performed in London in the same year of her execution. So we've got a copy of that playbook here in the exhibition and it shows you the executions touched every part of London life. It wasn't just the execution day itself but it was the economy. You could sell tickets, you could sell broadsides, ballads, books, accounts and things like that. And it was entertainment as well. People wanted to know more about these stories, these famous stories, and go and see them recreated. There's something rather extraordinary about that, isn't there? That there's a play made about this woman's execution within a few months of her being killed. It suggests a very different sensibility around execution to that which we have. And really does testify to that sense of it being entertainment and the entertainment only being continued in the play form. These two things not being separate. Yeah, I think definitely there are examples where the crowd were boisterous and it was a form of entertainment, it was a form of spectacle, it was a great pageant where the mayor and all the aldermen would come out in their finery. But it could be a very different atmosphere as well and it could be a very sombre affair. There are reports of the procession being very quiet, of hush, of great sympathy for the criminals as well. So I think it's, it's a stage on which kind of every aspect of life and every emotion can be played out. So one of the big pieces of research we did for the exhibition was we tried to find the names of as many people who'd been executed in London as possible to give them their moment in the exhibition and to acknowledge their lives and their deaths. And we found about 5,000 and we know that's just a small fraction because the records are quite good in the 18th and 19th century. So for the Tudor period, for example, we tend to only know about the really famous cases and these tended to be traitors, most famously, or heretics. And occasionally we do have examples of other crime. Coining comes up quite often, financial crimes, piracy. I think that was something that interested people, so it's sometimes written about. And occasionally 
theft and murder. So there were infamous murders even in the 16th century that would find their way into the records one way or another. But I think as you scroll through this list, it does give you a sense of the priorities of the time. It's really moving as well, because what we've got in front of us is this big screen that's gradually scrolling up like very slow credits at the end of a film. And we've got the date, we've got the person's name, if you know it, their sex, their age, if you know it, the crime and the site of execution. And just the sheer number of names coming up is startling. Every time we look at it, I see something else. So we're looking in the early 19th century at the moment, and we've got three 19-year-olds in a row, and then a 40-year-old, another 19-year-old, a 29-year-old, another 19-year-old. So many of these people are so young. To have your life out so early is very moving. There are older people as well. It's full of surprises, really. We know that public executions come to an end in the 19th century, and one little fact that has always stuck with me is that they don't end because people find them distasteful but because too many people are going. Well yeah there are lots of reasons it's unmanageable and most people who are being condemned to death are being let off anyway, a lot are being transported to America or Australia and so it doesn't really make sense at this period anyway but also there was this Victorian sense of cleanliness. They didn't want death on the streets and they didn't like the execution crowd. I think it's more that really than anything else. They felt that the people who went to see executions weren't learning the lesson that they were supposed to be learning. You were enjoying this too much. They were enjoying it too much. (laughs) Or they were sympathising too much. They weren't thinking about it in Christian terms, in religious terms. They weren't necessarily being put off. There are lots of reports of people going to see executions and then committing crimes themselves. So it's really that kind of sense that it's the wrong atmosphere. It's not suitable to a modern industrial heart of empire anymore. So the debate in the 1860s is about ending public execution, but not about ending execution. In a way, by making that decision to hold executions within prisons, away from the public, it quietens down the debate. And that's why you get executions for nearly another 100 years. Whereas if it had stayed, you're suggesting perhaps the tide would have turned earlier. I wonder if there would have been more public outcry. Now there's all sorts of wonderful documents and pictures and prints and coins and objects and casts of people's heads and doors and all manner of things to see here that we haven't had time to talk about. What do you hope people will take away when they've seen this exhibition? Which you must come and do, folks. Come and see this. (laughs) I think the thing that struck me was this isn't one of those bits of history that is pageantry and is almost one of those parts of history that feels so distant and a long time ago. It's a different world. It's not. This is London. This is the London that we know today in many ways. And capital punishment was a major part of every Londoner's life, everyone who visited the capital. And it really makes you think again, I think, about what a hard life it was to live in London, how present death was and how attitudes have changed. It makes me think very differently about London. And I think that's what people might take away. Absolutely. I think that research on the execution sites means I'm never going to look at a map in quite the same way again. Thank you so much for showing me around. It's been an absolute joy, which is a strange thing to say about an execution exhibition, but thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott, And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify 
and please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.